0: AlienLegacy.html is brought to you by the fine folks at the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, media, music, comics, and more, check out CageClub.me. That's CageClub.me. Everybody, he's Kevo and he's also Nico and <laughs> And this has been talking more or less Alien Legacy.
1: You didn't see that one coming. I like that. I really didn't.
0: We are currently
1: in part two of part two of series three of our show. Oh. It's a lot of numbers. It is. I really do love the fact that since the name of the first movie was just Alien, which is such a simple title, the fact that the sequel is Aliens again, just so simple, but it tells you exactly what you're going to be getting without giving away too much, without making it over dramatic. Such a clever way to make a companion piece to the first film.
0: And I kind of want to just say that I can't stop seeing the ways in which that influenced pop culture in a zillion trillion ways. E.T., the extraterrestrial. It's the same idea. You're just giving me this one word title that tells me everything. And I feel like this was an amazing time for sci-fi. We've talked about a number of projects through this program, like the way that the first Alien is actually a result of a failed Dune project. We've now discovered that Aliens is the result of James Cameron working so hard on Terminator.
1: And something that I didn't get much into in the first episode, I'm now realizing, is that another huge influence on James Cameron's Aliens film was the novel Starship Troopers.
0: You mean the Neil Patrick Harris joint from the 90s?
1: Yeah. Yes, that is specifically what I mean, and it's evident literally right from the very beginning when we meet the Colonial Marines on the Sulaco, the way that they talk about going on a bug hunt and all their terminology. James Cameron actually insisted that the Colonial Marine actors read Starship Troopers to help them get into character. They even had to go through military boot camp except for Sigourney Weaver, Paul Reiser, and the actor who played Gorman because they couldn't make it due to. Scheduling conflicts, which in a way kind of made sense for their characters anyway. They are the outsiders
0: among this crew. I'm so glad we're touching on the Colonial Marines before we get too far into the movie because the Colonial Marines went on to inspire an enormous amount of fandom. The Colonial Marines Guide was a highly circulated book that people traded on the internet for years that had details on their exact uniform and proper formations. The Colonial Marines would also go on to get their own video game series multiple times so knowing that james cameron put that much thought into it although it is funny in the last podcast i mentioned how many things i felt that james cameron borrowed from and to hear that he borrowed from another thing to make this movie is kind of funny
1: well if it makes you feel any better something that's borrowed From this movie, is the set that they used for the reactor core went on to be the chemical plant in the Batman film from 1989. So that's pretty funny.
0: And to touch on Batman for a moment, we've been talking about all the different ways these films had incredible creative minds behind them. One of the creative minds behind Alien was H.R. Geiger. H.R. Geiger had done a number of designs for Alien and the aforementioned canceled Dune that ultimately got used by Ridley Scott in Prometheus. Additionally, H.R. Geiger. radically redesigned the Batmobile for Batman Forever, but it was not used in the final film. So there's another little HR Geiger Batman connection for you. Interesting. And it's really funny, I feel like that does connect to
1: this in certain ways because the tank that they use in this movie It gives off a very strong Batmobile vibe, like something of the tank Batmobile from the Nolan era, but also something about the sleek, low-to-the-ground Batmobile from the 89 and 90s Batman movies.
0: I very much get that. In so many ways, we're talking about how Alien and Aliens inspired dozens of films after them. In some cases, they even inspired films before them, as we discussed James Cameron using Terminator to prepare for Aliens. And, you know, I like
1: that you made a point to emphasize how important the colonial marines are, because I personally really feel like that's where the movie starts. We got this slow pan across the Sulaco that goes on for about two full minutes, and it very, very, very strongly evokes images from the first Alien, where we had the same of the Nostromo before the crew wakes up. It sort of feels like everything that comes before we're introduced to the Sulaco is mostly prologue. And that makes a lot of sense. In the original cut of the film, it's a lot of this footage that had been cut. A lot of Ripley finding out about her daughter and scenes from the LV-426 colony were some of the things that made it to the cutting room floor.
0: I'm a big fan of establishing atmosphere. I'll sit through a three-hour movie if you can make all three hours of it worth it. Something we talk about in various forms on this show is we very much apply to the idea of Chekhov's gun. We do believe that anything that is included should have purpose. Otherwise, it's sort of wasteful and confusing. And I understand that one of the things that is so difficult to do with a movie like this is to not over-choreograph. But proper care has to go into setting these up. We talked about how Newt is kind of shoehorned in in a very, oh, isn't that convenient kind of way. But they're trying to make every minute count. And I feel like Cameron does a really good job with the dialogue on early Colonial Marine scenes in a way that's not exposition, whereas a lot of the dialogue that comes before it is very expository. I don't love a lot of the dialogue between Burke and Ripley. But by the time we get to this really fun ragtag team of high hyper-masculine semi-diverse characters that are the colonial marines i'm pretty excited number one Hudson is just actually too fucking hot. Yeah, Bill Paxton in the 80s, man. Ugh. Oh my my God. Oh my God. And Vasquez is just too fucking hot Uh, and, you know, even Hicks, fine, he can get it. The cast does so much to make me love this movie even when the script occasionally lets me down. There's a few jokes that I think are of questionable content. There's specifically the moment where Hudson asks Vasquez if she's ever been mistaken for a man and she replies, no, have you? Everybody laughs. It seems to be good-natured i would like to think it's not transphobic but rather they're ribbing each other in a fun way because they never ever feminize vasquez she's never treated as the girl soldier she's always one of them
1: i'd call it like passively transphobic in a way that at the time was meant to be empowering It's something that we should be getting away from now, but you always need to consider when a film was made and what things were socially acceptable. The character of Vasquez at the time was more groundbreaking than not. And we need to take things like that into consideration when we view something, especially that's over 30 years old now.
0: And I'm an enormous, enormous, enormous fan of well-handled diversity. I think Vasquez writing in Spanish all over her armor is actually really well done. It's celebratory and decorative and I actually really like it. Yeah, I think it's just a part of her personality. I am
1: fascinated by the person who plays Vasquez because her name is Jeanette Goldstein because she is Jewish and she would later go on to star in Terminator 2 Judgment Day as Bill Paxton, Michael Bean, and Lance Henriksen had all previously appeared in James Cameron's The Terminator but then Jeanette Goldstein would go on to be featured in the film Titanic as an Irish immigrant mother. That one mom with the two little kids who, like, she's tucking them in and, like, telling them the story about Tiernanoke. That's Vasquez from Aliens. It blew my goddamn
0: mind that's that's some versatility absolutely and I would have never guessed that Vasquez is probably one of my top characters in the franchise I just think she's fucking incredible that said my second favorite character in the movie is definitely Bishop there is something about Lance Henriksen's performance as a robot meant to be programmed to make humans feel comfortable who really wishes he could make humans feel more comfortable I don't know I just really love that he cannot let someone be hurt by action or inaction and He does seem caring. I just think it's a great performance.
1: If I don't love Bishop as effusively as you, I think it's only due to the unfair fair reality that negative actions make a stronger imprint on us than positive ones and I think that Bishop is a really great counterbalance to Ash and everything that Ash did in the first film I think that Bishop shows that not all androids are evil even though we are going to learn in the more recent films that nope all androids are just evil and whatever we'll get there when we get there but I definitely agree I think there's a lot of good to be found in bishop and he's a really amazing strong character
0: it's like that moment where he does the knife trick with his hand pressed over hudson's i actually find that really adorable and i love bill paxton screaming through there and i just think that whole sequence is great i don't know what it is i just really love the colonial marines i love them eating their disgusting slop i think they're all really great there's that one incredibly jacked colonial marine who basically is like, I fucking hate this, when he wakes up and walks out of cryostasis. There's little things like that. Even minor marines are given a personality which gives the colonial marines as a core a personality. There's something very well thought about how he structured the battalion. And I guess in a lot of ways, it was great training for all of the different families on the Titanic. And for so many things that James Cameron has done with teams, you know, it's
1: hard not to compare so many things from aliens to avatar i you know openly admit i have not seen it but i'm aware of enough of the plot to know how much militarization there is to the different sets of characters from that film and as much as terminator was a learning curve for aliens i think a lot of aliens was a learning curve for so many of the things that he did later in his career
0: something james cameron does very well is he handles the magic of sci-fi juxtaposed against the reality of humanity really beautifully whether it's something like Aliens or Avatar or things that have elements of sort of nearly sci-fi size tragedy. Obviously, the Titanic is not a sci-fi movie, but Titanic does have such an unthinkable element to it. The Abyss has an unthinkable element to it.
1: Well, and just the concept of a ship like the Titanic sinking was basically science fiction at the time. It was, what, 20 or 30 years before that there was that? Oh, what was the name of that novel? But it was about a steamliner named Titan that had been thought that God himself couldn't sink her and it sank. And I mean, there was also stuff about like polar bears attacking survivors on ice flows. So, like, it's not exactly what happened to the real Titanic, but still,
0: it's that same ability to drive home reality and humanity that i can really see his arguments for a parallel between aliens and the vietnam war very clearly through this discussion once the marines are awake and ripley has shown up everybody's very who's that lady oh she saw an alien ha 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 and they're all laughing at her but one of the most amazing things is cameron has no patience for that and instantly ripley proves herself in the moving droid impressing everyone on the base
1: and it's a scene that works for me on every single level. As a writer who is able to recognize as we mentioned Chekhov's gun, you show us that this thing exists and obviously it's going to come up later in the film. It makes sense to me that she would so easily be able to work the exodroid. It's something that she did back in her day and technology would have only advanced you would think in 57 years and again, I love how impressed Hicks and Epon are with her and the fact that this helps ingratiate her with the rest of the crew.
0: Once the marines get themselves back to LV-426, it's almost baffling because this does not feel like the same planet we spent time on in the first movie, but it has to be. I really
1: liked that at this point in the film, though, they started to lean back into the atmospheric horror of the Alien franchise as the marines are slowly making their way through the main building of the colony looking for survivors and they see all of these barricades and overturned pieces of furniture and you know Ripley obviously knows exactly what happened but you know these guys have no idea what they're dealing with still
0: but they like to think that they do there's this hyper posturing macho yeah we'll blow it up yeah and obviously part of that is the positivity you need to use in order to secure your own success you need to be sure you're going to win to win and I understand the logic there but there is something to be said about how hardcore Ripley is trying to say you're all gonna die and you're doing it wrong Unless
1: apparently you're like an eight-year-old girl who is hiding out in air ducts. Like, it's science fiction fantasy in the first place, so you always have to suspend your disbelief. The fact that Nude is the only survivor, like, I have to imagine this child had to have just been days from death.
0: I would not have been shocked if they had said that she ultimately had a chest burster in her or something, because it's so strange that she would be able to evade the aliens for so long. I understand the purpose that her character serves, but we've seen the aliens crawl through ducts. We've seen them use cleverness. And I do not believe this little girl who has a habit of standing right in the way of danger. (laughs) We literally see her freeze in the face of the aliens over and over. I have to assume it's because the ducts that
1: we see her go through. that Ripley follows her through are specifically very small. The ducts that we see later in the film when it's all of the surviving Marines trying to evade the aliens, they're so big that they can practically like run through them. They just have to scrunch down a little bit. But when they go after Newt, it's something more akin to the horrifying touch tunnel from Liberty Science Center where it's this tiny little thing you got to wriggle through and aliens have that giant penis head they have to worry about. So
0: yeah, I guess Bishop crawled through one of the Newt tunnels at one point, and I guess that's an argument to be made.
1: So, after that, they investigate the computers of the LV 426 base and they find a reading that tells them that all of the colonists are located underneath the nuclear reactor or nuclear if you're Carter. Good job. That's not suspicious at all. Let's go check it out.
0: That actually brings up one of my favorite moments. Ripley is not just good at her job, she's incredibly clever. And she says, Hey, wait a minute, what are they armed with? They can't use those under a nuclear. Nuclear reactor. And it's just that level of cleverness that has driven Ripley to be one of the most successful female protagonists of a sci-fi franchise ever. And we
1: also get a moment here of one of the soldiers saying the phrase, I only work here when talking about being given orders and following them without thinking. And there's a huge theme in this and the first film of zero accountability or curiosity for things decided above your pay grade. The foreman earlier in the film said the same thing when being asked about a colonist's rights to a claim that they found. And it even harkens back to the beginning of the previous film that we've brought up frequently of Brett and Parker talking about whether or not they're gonna get their fair share of their haul. People are more concerned about getting their job done than asking questions. That is something that this film franchise likes to play with a lot.
0: We see it exemplified in Ash's speech about the perfect killing machine that is the Xenomorph. It has no problems killing. It has no problems murdering. It's just instinct, pure and simple. And we have to assume that this is what Waylon Utani thinks is a better idea for life because. One of the things that's shocking to me is how much more nefarious the plots of Wayland Utani get over and over again. As we're going to find out from Burke's ultimate portrayal, we kind of have some hints about it throughout the film. Burke stays incredibly calm and sort of trauma when everybody else is becoming incredibly upset during the initial bug hunt.
1: I mean, he has that executive attitude of, oh, of course I'm going to survive. I think even from the very introduction of the character when he says that he's with Weyland Yutani and makes the joke of, but I'm a good guy, really. She's been asleep for 57 years. She has no idea what Weyland Yutani's current reputation is, but the first thing that you say to Ripley is, oh, LOL, but I'm one of the good people at weyland Utani, And the look that she gives him, she very smartly never really trusts Burke from the start.
0: And initially, it would seem the colonial marines don't trust her a whole lot. It isn't until this bug hunt where they begin to understand her knowledge base is pretty significant. The marines charge in, thinking that they're going to find the colonists, and instead what they find is a colony of some kind.
1: Yeah, it's about an hour and 13 minutes that the aliens first start showing up, and gosh, there are a heck of a lot more in this movie than there were in the first one, aren't
0: there? And the number of xenomorphs alone could explain the enormous jump in budget this is a lot of really well created costumes and prosthetics the alien army is so much more ballet inspired in some ways than in alien in alien i often felt the alien moved so slow it's like a michael myers kind of slow creep behind you Mm. but here the aliens are gonna fucking fuck you up man these aliens are here to eat you
1: and they're everywhere one of the things that amps up the intensity of this movie is in the first one there's only one so if it's attacking one Person, you know where that alien is. But when they call for an evacuation from the planet, there had been an alien that snuck onto the drop ship that was supposed to come and pick them up, which causes those two pilots to die and crash into the nuclear reactor. Which that's another one of those places where I get so annoyed by how frequently people die due to unprofessionalism in these movies. She yells at the dude to like just draw up ship and go and not follow procedure and doesn't listen when he tries to warn her that there's something something going on in the cargo hold, and like, it's just literally the opposite of a Ripley. If you're not a Ripley, you just, you're kind of asking for it.
0: Really, there's only three people in this entire franchise. There are xenomorphs, there are Ripleys, and there are victims. And there's not a whole lot else that ties these films together. However, one of the things that does become important is regardless of who's in charge, Ripley begins making all of the calls here. She even at one point, to usurp the power from Burke, says that someone else is in charge. And then he does exactly what she wants, because Ripley understands how to get shit done.
1: Absolutely. The follow-up to one of the most famous lines in cinema history, let alone Aliens game over man, game over. Hudson having his horrendous panic attack at this devastating loss of their men. Ripley is the one that calms him down and it's a really great moment for her because he's not resentful or rude or there's no comments of the fact that he's helped by a woman or anything like that. It's just a really powerful
0: moment and he is nothing but grateful for her assistance. There's a similar moment where somebody has to help Ripley let go of the controls behind the ship because she's so braced and she's in such a state of shock. This is a movie about a community and about a colony coming together to survive we refer to Alien as a survivor film over and over. Aliens is a movie about the humanity in all of us trying to make it together. The focus becomes on you're one of us or you're one of them. And they are not saying you're one of us or you're one of them in terms of you're either a human and a colonial marine or you're a xenomorph. You are either in the name of survival and killing every one of these motherfuckers or you're one of them. And that's the point at which Carter Burke becomes the odd man out. In Alien, the clear bad guy, other than, you know, the alien, Alien is Ash. Here, it's not Bishop. Bishop proves himself over and over again. Carter Burke, as a human being desiring profit, is the actual villain of Alien. And I believe I read that there is
1: actually a little bit more footage, even, where we find out that Carter Burke is directly responsible for sending Newt's family to LV-426
0: after the inquest, out of curiosity of finding something there. One of the things that definitely strikes me as a difference between Alien and Aliens is while Alien makes it very clear that the weyland Utani Corp is fascinated by the Xenomorph and interested in knowing more, Aliens has such a focus on the evils of capitalism and the evils of cor- Corporation, which I think in many ways we do see again in the form of Terminator's fear of Skynet, which we see in the notion of Avatar and imminent domain and deforestation. So I feel like Cameron has been telling threads of a similar story over and over again. And Alien is just maybe the most he ever dressed it up as an 80s action movie. I could see that.
1: So it's at this point in the film that there are a few developments in the plot where things start to pick up the pace a little bit. They question where all of these eggs could have possibly come from, and I don't know. I just always would have assumed they came from the ship. But no, they jump to the conclusion that there must be a queen. So that introduces that element to the plot. We also find out that the dropship crashing into the nuclear reactor is going to cause an explosion. So Bishop volunteers to be sealed into a pipe, Shawshank style, and crawl over there and remotely, like, pilot the new dropship down. And it's such a huge sacrifice, the, the mission that Bishop goes on. And it goes to the heart of everything that Nico is saying about him being such a great character the last thing that he says to them as they are sealing him into this pipe is to watch their fingers as they're placing the metal over his body like amazing
0: one of the only things that I don't really have time for in Aliens to be completely real with you is I don't have time for the Ripley romance subplot
1: it's so barely there though it's really one of those things that we always talk about where it's, it's just slapped on heterosexuality if you like turned their interaction down just a fraction they would basically just be friends they never even kiss honestly ripley has a much more significant and emotional bond with newt i would say than hicks
0: and the only thing that makes the newt bond one of the things that was so important to shaping the newt bond was of course to take away ripley's daughter ripley loses a young child and then here comes a new young child to fill that void it also allows ripley to be better contrasted with the alien queen the alien queen is looking to take care of her children. Now, obviously, at no point does the queen go, ah, my babies, my babies, my bugs, but the queen does show anger. One of the things Cameron did so well, as we have pointed out, is he keeps referencing the first film, but in new ways. I love the scene between Newt and Ripley, where the facehugger is coming after them in the science lab. It has so many clever echoes of scenes of the first movie, while still being its own unique narrative. It's
1: something that I enjoy from the film, but if you were asking me what things I would cut, I think this scene is one of them. Burke's plan is a little bit convoluted that he was going to implant facehugger embryos in them without anyone noticing. Like, it says to me that Hicks isn't very good at his job, that he has so few civilians that he's protecting that he didn't check the security feed. And also, I love the part where Ripley is like, I'm going to be watching you through that camera. And it's like an oscillating security camera. This is the The security system of the future, an oscillating camera that shows feed in black and white.
0: Goodness gracious. That one part where we were both like, I'm sorry, this blue digital screen and joystick control. It was a little rough. One of the moments that like stands out for me is when Newt smashes the table to hold back the face hugger. In that moment, I can maybe understand how Newt has survived so long. Yeah, yeah, I get that.
1: And I love Hudson being protective of her. I love the way that they immediately come to Ripley's aid. The scene where they're trying to, like, keep the facehugger from latching on to her. It's a wild animal. Wouldn't it at a certain point just turn and try to attack someone else? I... You know, but plot contrivance, it's fine, I understand. The scene doesn't even go on that long before the alien incursion and the final real confrontation between the large group of remaining survivors begins.
0: And that is something that we never ever had an alien. There was never a sense of war. This idea that they're coming in through the ceiling and the aliens begin to rain on them.
1: They did play that gag a few too many times in this film after already having the scene. Of Lambert sobbing because the alien is right there. And then it turns out that it's one level down. We got a very similar concept earlier in the film when they were trying to find the colonist survivors at the nuclear station. And then we have them not knowing how the aliens are in the room with them. They're in the ceiling. How did that not occur to you that that was a possibility that you're so shocked that it
0: happened? Especially because half of your plans have involved using the duct work yourselves. I've never faced a horde of
1: acid-spitting aliens, so who am I to judge? And they're still able to make those lovely ducts and ceilings and whatnot work for them as they begin their chase sequence through the accommodatingly tall air ducts. You almost have to wonder, because these air ducts were built. They were built! They built these on LV-426. Like, maybe that was their function, though. Maybe they're, you're supposed to be able to fit through them easily. I don't know. We didn't really get much information
0: about what was going on at Hadley's Hope before everyone was just dead. I can only imagine the engineers designing this base. Mm, we should leave it. We should definitely leave enough room for a giant alien penis monster. Let's definitely leave enough room for an alien penis monster.
1: Speaking of alien penis monsters, though, um, I think it's weird that Gorman was not at any point impregnated by an alien. He has that concussion when a bunch of boxes fall on his head, which is just laughable. Then there's this enormous gap where we don't see him for a while. We see him coming out of the med bay with Burr but nothing ever comes of any of that it's not relevant to the plot i had turned to you and i said is he implanted and you were like yeah i think so and then no he's not the way that gorman goes out is with a grenade protecting the others going down with vasquez if he was supposed to be impregnated it's not something that came up in the movie
0: in fact does anybody get impregnated in chest bursty in this movie huh is the only person who experiences the chestburster moment ripley
1: in the nightmare yeah and in fact the only person that i can think of that we really see properly face hugged
0: is Newt's dad. Meanwhile, that's a good portion of Alien. In that way, it's kind of like Alien focuses on the life cycle and the death cycle of the xenomorph in terms of its growth and the death of other things, and Aliens focuses on what happens once you're too late.
1: Yeah, that's a really good take, and again it speaks to the titles themselves being Alien and Aliens.
0: One of the most uncomfortable things about Alien is that the that kills everyone on that ship was inside Kane. The creatures killing people here perhaps were inside Newt's father, but Newt's father is not a character we identify with throughout the film.
1: Newt is, but um, then she's so stupid that she falls down a vent because she didn't let go of her doll head. So like, I wasn't 100% rooting for Ripley to go back for her. I'm mostly kidding. But like, why didn't you drop the doll head? Ripley could have grabbed your other hand.
0: So I agree. Newt Pickles refusing to drop Cynthia is is one of the dumber parts of this movie especially because i feel like that's what ultimately means that ripley makes one of the only decisions i don't care for ripley deciding they have to save newt is the first time she's maybe willing to let the planet become overrun with aliens and kind of like a matter of speaking kind
1: of yeah when she and hicks make it out as far as they know they are literally the only survivors they saw everyone else get taken out by aliens they don't know if newt made it they don't even know if bishop made it by that point i understand the trauma that she's going through but i think a later ripley would be more focused on stopping the threat but i wonder if that has to do with the future loss of Newt, and feeling
0: a sort of nihilism about anything but stopping these aliens. Although, without the need to rescue Newt, we probably wouldn't have gotten that nest scene. Mm. And it's such an important scene. In order to save her own child, well, kind of, Ripley has to enter the nest of the Queen. And she doesn't just save her own child, she kind of kills all of the Queen's babies. It's
1: definitely one of my favorite scenes in the entire franchise when they walk slowly through the egg field, and Ripley and the queen have this silent almost primal standoff you can almost sense an exchange between them where the queen is sizing her up and ripley flexes by shooting off her flamethrower not anywhere that's necessarily a threat but just to show that she could be one and the queen just lets her pass and it's when one of the eggs folds open that ripley gets this look on her face like you bitch you you broke this truce now they're all fucking dead
0: i've never like been happier to be your husband than that description of that scene that scene was because i'll be honest the first time i saw aliens i didn't love it as much as i loved alien and then i got to that scene and i just thought it was transformative because ripley is on a journey of ascension Throughout this film, she step by step becomes more powerful and greater than she was. And that's the final step she needs before her physical transformation as a magical girl into a robot. That's why there's an elevator in the scene. Ooh. I completely accept that because it's at this point that Ripley has killed all of the Alien Queen's babies. The alien tears itself off of its sack and goes after her.
1: It is a little bit ridiculous that the Alien Queen uses the elevator, though. Like, that almost kills it for me when the door opens and she's standing there. Yeah, you're, like, miming, pushing buttons and looking at your watch as an alien queen, but no, legitimately. Like, she just happened to press the right button?
0: Ugh. Now I have this mental image that she didn't press the right button, that she keeps pressing the wrong button and doing the jump scare, like, and has to reset over and over again.
1: Like, what if it went down first and then she's like, oh, right, it's the other button. Is that how intelligent these creatures are? Is that what you're trying to say? Or do you just not want us to think about it? I'll accept either one, but like, I need, I need to know which one it is.
0: As if to justify my fandom, Bishop comes in and it's this moment where you're like, no, the world is a better place. Place androids are better, and there's people like Ripley. We haven't lost to Whalen Utani yet. And then the Queen pops up. Surprise, bitches! Absolutely. And Ripley manages to get Newt on the ship, and then Ripley suits the fuck up. If Ripley putting on the mecha suit did not help prepare an entire generation of kids for Power Rangers, I'm shocked.
1: And I think it was a really smart choice not to have any score in the battle between exosuit Ripley and the Queen. I don't know if it's because of the things that I mentioned about what a difficult time James Horner had doing the score for this film, or if it was a specific choice. I kind of hope it was, because I think anything that you put against that scene probably was would have made it just look kind of silly if there was this heroic fanfare but you know only being scored by the hisses and grunts from the queen and the whirring machinery and Ripley yelling, I think it made the scene that much more powerful.
0: I remember the first time I watched it, just like grabbing my chest and screaming. I I recognized at that moment, if I had been in the movie theater when that came out, I would have ruined it for everybody. I compare it to the end of endgame. I get so into it. It is incredible. The only thing I don't love is how slow everything has to move by virtue of the giant mech it is and the alien queen herself not being the fastest, but it's everything Ripley does, down to scrunching her fucking mouth shut as if to say, bitch, I know your tricks and you're not getting at me.
1: But I think they kept it short enough and they shot it well enough that it really all works. They didn't go on for too long, and I appreciate that. I also appreciated that they have at least a slightly better understanding of how space works in that there's like suction when they open the airlock and Ripley struggles not to be sucked in. It's still not, you know, actual science, but you're closer. You tried. Also, Hicks never speaks again after Ripley goes off to save Newt.
0: That is interesting. And you know, I just want to touch on the alien getting callied out the airlock for a moment I think oh Battlestar oh you suck actually space does and that's one of my only problems so while Bishop is like never ending story horsed into the ground and Newt's like Bishop save me and Ripley is like flying out an airlock there is this real sense of you know what maybe everyone will die at the end of this movie maybe they will defeat the alien queen but everyone will die it is not the most unbelievable rescue that they're able to make it happen and i do love that the movie ends in a very similar manner to the first film but i do agree with you realizing that some of the only remaining characters have no dialogue in the fourth act is boggling
1: And it makes me think of Thor Ragnarok in terms of knowing this film is going to immediately be invalidated. If anything, Thor Ragnarok walked that back a lot by reintroducing a lot of the Asgardian characters and showing us that there were survivors. But, you know, six years from now, Ripley's going to wake up and nope, everyone's gone again. And now you're on a prison planet. So
0: good luck. That film is a result of countless contract disputes. There is even an edit without Ripley in it known as the William Gibson edit, which recently received novel a podcast, and I think even a comic book adaptation. Before we can get to that, though, we're going to take a quick stop in a closely related franchise. Many of you may know that Alien took a brief respite from producing films about the titular xenomorph and instead did a crossover series known as Alien vs. Predator. And it happened. The first one's got things I like. Yes, the second one was produced.
1: I actually have not yet seen it, and I am looking in the forward direction
0: toward it. because it is in front of me. Absolutely. So in order to possibly understand what could maybe remotely be enjoyable about the second one, we're going to take a deep dive into Predator. Uh,
1: dive. We'll see how deep the dive gets when we find out whether we like the pool or not.
0: That is a very fair point. And Kevo, until we dip our toes in the pool of invisible murder men, where can everybody find you on the internet? They're
1: technically not invisible. There's a telltale shimmer, but you can find me on the internet on Twitter and Instagram at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y, or on the Facebook page for this lovely show, Husbands Talking More or Less. You can also find the super cool, super fun, super inclusive superhero stories that Nico and I produce over at KidRideComics.com. And Nico, what about you? Where can the folks at home find you?
0: You guys can find me all over this network on shows like Now and Again, which I do with my childhood best friend Chris Podcasts. We talk about the Now That's What I Call music series as well as a number of other music collections. Also, you can check out our incredible comic book feed, X's for Podcast, where Kevo, along with our boyfriend Jonah and our best friends Dylan and Kyle, take a look at the amazing X-Men comic book franchise. We have three separate feeds, a uh, classic 80s mutant mania focusing on Chris Claremont's landmark stories, Dawn of X focusing on John Hickman's incredible new era of X-Men, as well as the upcoming Thor Bros Thursdays, so you don't want to miss that. You can also find me being half naked all over the place on Instagram at NicoAction, NicoAction and you can even check out some of my theme work on shows on this network like Too Fast, Too Forever, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and until we're back, Kevo, where can everybody find you online? Right. So... we will see
1: you. Yeah, can we wrap this up? I put off tea time for this.
0: 9, 10, 11, 12, Patty!